And for the rest of us, we are finishing up our fall, it doesn't feel like fall, but our fall sermon series in the life of Abraham. We are in chapter 25. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. Genesis chapter 25, we're going to be in the first 18 verses. In 1956, the Australian government announced an international competition to build and design the Sydney Opera House. That same year, Danish architect Jan Utzen, I think that's how you pronounce it, it's fun to say, so I'm going to go with it, Jan Utzen sent in 12 sketches, 12 drawings. There were hundreds that sent in their designs to build the Sydney Opera House, and by some miracle, Jan Utzen, a relative architectural unknown, won the competition. Uh, In the 1950s, modern architecture was all the rage. If you don't know anything about modern architecture, neither do I, but I learned a few things this week, which was modern architecture, broadly speaking, rejected the sort of ornate, the decorative. They pushed for form, Uh, for function over kind of ornate form. And Jan Utzen's design pushed against modern architecture. And instead, he sort of, in, in small part, invented a new architectural design called expressionistic architecture. If you've never seen the Sydney Opera House, it is gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's right there on the harbor. And the ceiling is like this textured, these like shells that kind of stack on top of the other. It is beautiful. It is a testimony to architectural and uh, engineering feat of some sort. And so he began to build it in 1957, but with prices soaring, and he was not the best manager, and there was a bunch of conflict. Eventually, he was asked to resign as chief architect of the Sydney Opera House. People wiser than me have said that the Sydney Opera House is one of the greatest architectural and engineering feats and buildings built in the 20th century. And yet, in 2008, when Jan Utzen died, he never, ever saw the opera, the Sydney Opera House, finished. He had a sort of architectural crisis of faith. He taught at a university. He dabbled in a few projects, but for the most part, he died never having seen the thing that he designed in his mind. He had this dream. He had this picture of what this building could be. He sketched it, but he never saw it in real life and in person. He sort of lived between the dream and its reality, the gap between those two things. This fall, we've been studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, and we've called this sermon series Living in the Gap because in many ways, that's what it's like living in this world. We live in between the gap. We have dreams and aspirations, but so often those dreams and those aspirations just feel a little out of reach. We have these desires, these hopes, but so often we just come up a bit short. 
And so we're living in the gap, not the clothing store. We're living in the gap between these two realities. The Christian story says we live in the gap between old Eden, which we've lost, and a new Eden, which is yet to be fulfilled. And today we come to an end of our sermon series, sort of pursuing what does it look like to live faithfully in between the gap between these two realities. And we really do come to the end of our sermon series, and verses 1 to 18 is a conclusion. So the entire weight of chapters 12 to chapter 24 is now just, the the weight of it is all in this conclusion. All of the different plots, all the different themes, all the ideas, all the theological truths from chapter 12 to 24 all exist in this conclusion. Thoughts like, trust God. Don't take things into your own hands. God is big enough to accomplish his own plans according to his own will. Have faith. Silence those voices. All those lessons that we've been meditating on as a church these past few months, well, the weight of these 18 verses is a summary of all those great truths in the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham up to this point. The structure, and I'm going to read it, but I'm going to kind of give you the structure so you can see it. The structure is really simple. You have two genealogies, and then in between the genealogy, we have the death of Abraham. So, two genealogies sandwiching the death of Abraham. And my hope is that whatever you come into this building with, whatever dreams or aspirations, whatever things that are encouraging you or discouraging you, Whatever you come into this building with, my hope is that today, as we study these 18 verses, you can walk away saying, I can trust God a little bit more as a result of God's word to me this morning. That's the big idea that I want to submit before you. You can trust God from beginning to end. And to kind of go through this, we're going to look at three aspects of trusting God, or three aspects of God's faithfulness. We're going to look at the exactness to God's faithfulness. We're going to look at the eternality of God's faithfulness. And then lastly, an expectation in light of God's faithfulness. Exactness, eternality, and an expectation. Don't we all love alliteration? Verse 1. There is a lot of names in here. I will do my best, but... This is going to be the hardest part of this sermon. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshash, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuhan. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dinan. The sons of Dinan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumimin. Close enough. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of Abraham, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. 
Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Mechpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohor, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field of Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and settled at Beer Lahoi Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebuhoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsham, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, that these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havalah to Shur, which is opposite to Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So there, if you go back to verse 1, in verse 1 to 4, we have the genealogy of Abraham as it relates to his wife, Keturah. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we mourned the death of Sarah in chapter 23. And now we learn that Abraham fathered six more children through another wife, Keturah. And then if you skip down to verse 12, we have another genealogy, the genealogy of Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar, who also was the father of Abraham, or Abraham was the father of Ishmael. Ishmael had 12 sons. We see them listed in order of their birth. And these 12 sons are 12 princes over 12 tribes of this area, kind of east of the promised land. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read genealogies, my guess is you kind of gloss over and you're like, I'm going to skip mostly because I don't know how to read the names. And I don't know if these names are anything other than a historical footnote, a reminder of the historicity of the Bible. We often do that, but there's something more going on in genealogies. There's something far more than just, you know, Moses making an Ancestry.com update. There is an exactness to God's faithfulness, and he is smuggling in the author some really important truths for us to consider in not just this genealogy, but I dare say any genealogy in all the Bible is a display of really important theological truths. So starting in chapter 12, when Abraham enters the story, God makes a lot of promises. And he makes a lot of exact promises, precise, accurate promises. Promises to an extent that if they didn't come true, you could know about it. Right, you might have, you know, be flipping the TV and some like fortune tellers like, oh, at this time you you might have this in right. No, no, no. There's an exactness to these promises that God gives to Abraham, and what we see is all throughout this section, God is reminding us through these genealogies that God is good on His word. So let me just point out a few of them. So God, in chapter 15, verse four. God explains one of these promises. God explains to Abraham that he's going to have a son through Sarah named Isaac. Remember, Sarah was barren. And God says, I know that she's barren, but I'm still going to 
work in your lives to such an extent that you will have a son and you will name that son Isaac. That son will be the heir of promise. Then you go to chapter 25 and you realize that Abraham has lots of sons. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, who's going to be the heir to this promise? Verse 5 and verse 6 make it quite clear that God is coming through on his word. We read, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, the heir. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac east to the east country. See, God's signaling here that he's coming through on his promise to Abraham that he would bear a son, Isaac, and that son would be heir to the promise, particularly the land. Isaac is getting the lion's share, according to God. And verse 5 and 6 remind us that God fulfilled in part that promise. Then you might remember in chapter 15, verse 5, God says to Abraham that he's going to be buried in a good old age. That seems interesting. God says, you're going to live a long time and then be buried. Verse 8 says, Abraham was buried in a good old age. This is not just like a throwaway. This is a reminder that what God said in chapter 15, 40 years ago, actually came true. Abraham died at a good old age. Then in verse 9, we read that Abraham was buried with Sarah at the cave of Machpelah in Mamre. This true is a sort of a veiled reference to God's faithfulness. He said, I'm going to give you the land, and he dies owning a part, a piece of the land, and is buried there. Chapter 12, verse 7. And then if you go down to verses 12 through 18, that list of Ishmael's sons, well, Three times God says, I'm going to bless not just Isaac, but I'm going to bless Ishmael, make him a great nation. And that's what's going on here, right? He has 12 sons, a great nation. But then even more precisely in chapter 17, uh, he says this, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him a fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father to 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Even Ishmael's family is a reminder to us of God's faithfulness, the exactness, the precision, the accuracy that God goes to in order to accomplish his plan. Even verse 11, we read of this this place that Isaac settles, Beer Lahoy Roy. That's not just some location to reorient you on Google Earth. That phrase, that location comes up earlier in the story of Hagar. It means God sees. God is faithful to see the plight of God's people. Even that location is a reminder to us of the exactness, the precision, the meticulous nature of God's faithfulness to all of his promises. So here at the conclusion of Abraham's life, at the end of this section of the Bible, Moses, the author, wants us to know precisely this, that God came through for Abraham. That's what these genealogies do. That's how they function. They're a reminder to us theologically of the simple truth that God is faithful to his word. They're a display of the uniqueness of God's specific, meticulous fulfillment of all of his promises. But 
It's not just the only genealogy in the Bible. And my guess is that this Advent season, at some point, you're going to read or hear a sermon or hear on the radio the genealogy of Matthew. Do you guys know how the genealogy of Matthew begins? It begins in, in many ways a very similar way to the genealogy in Genesis 25. Matthew 1, verse 1 starts, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew, in his genealogy, is reminding us, reminding you, reminding all of us, through that genealogy, that God is faithful. You see, the promise that God gave to Abraham was that one day a king would come from the line of Abraham who would reign over all, who would bring a people to himself fully and finally purchased in his own blood. And Matthew is signaling, it has arrived. Finally, God has fulfilled that promise that he gave in part to Abraham. It has come to fulfillment. So when you read Matthew 1 and you read the long list of names, that is nothing short of a reminder to all of us that even if it takes a minute, God is faithful to his word. The ultimate way we see that is God's faithfulness to send his own son to live and to die, to be resurrected and to fulfill those messianic promises of the Old Testament. God is sort of type A about his promises. There is an exactness to all the promises of God being fulfilled, and we see the meticulousness and the extent to which God fulfills his promise here in these genealogies. But not only do we see the exactness of God's faithfulness, in the middle section, after these genealogies, the middle section, we see two more aspects to God's faithfulness. We really do see the eternality of God's faithfulness. Look look at verse 9. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. You ever considered that phrase, gathered to his people? Sometimes we just assume, oh, that's just a synonym for death. So Abraham lived a long time, He died, and he was gathered to his people. That is, he was buried or he died. I don't think that's exactly what's going on. I think there's more implied here theologically than just a synonym for death. Because that phrase actually comes up a lot in the Bible. It comes up at the end of our section related to Ishmael. And then we learn that not only Abraham, Ishmael, but Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses all were gathered to their people. In Genesis 49, we read of Jacob's death, who was the grandson of Abraham. And in verse 33 of chapter 49, we read this. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, if you know anything about the story, he was not buried right then. It took actually months for Jacob to be buried back in the promised land, back with his grandmother and grandmother, Sarah and Abraham. So it can't exactly be that gathered to his people is a synonym for death or burial. Something else is going on here. There seems to be a reference, at minimum, theologically, that what Moses is telling us and alluding to is that even when we die and are buried, there is something beyond this world. That death does not mean the ceasing of life. That death does not mean that the story ends. 
Death is not the end. Death is not the ceasing of existence. Abraham died, and at that moment, he was gathered to his people. People, evidently, who are in existence post-death. You see, the story, our stories, our little stories, and God's big story, they correlate. Our stories fit in a far bigger story. We live and die, but that story is fit into a far bigger story in which there is death, there is life beyond the grave. There is life beyond death. Our stories don't end with the ceasing of our breath. God isn't just faithful in our earthly lives. God is faithful eternally. I think this was in the mind of Mark chapter uh, mind of Jesus in Mark 12. Do, do you remember that scene? Jesus is with the uh, Sadducees and they didn't believe in a life after death and so they come to him and they're like, you don't believe in this resurrection bit? Jesus responds, have you not read in the book of Moses in the, the passage about the bush? This is Exodus. How God spoke to, to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And basically what Jesus is saying is, how could God say I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they no longer exist. They had long been dead, and yet God still called them, present tense, that I am the God of them. Therefore, they are alive in a sense. In other words, there is an eternality of God's faithfulness. David says the same thing in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is an amazing psalm of David, just like crying out to God, praising him, his majesty, his glory, the heights of God. And then he says, if I ascend to heaven, God, you are there. And if I descend to Sheol, which is the the land beyond death, you are there. David is saying, if I go to heaven, post-death, God, you are there. There is life after death. Death isn't the end. Death is merely the beginning of a new story, the first page of a new era, a never-ending story of people living together. There's a hint of hope smuggled in even the death of Abraham and this genealogy. He was gathered to his people, which doesn't make for us living on this side of death. It doesn't mean that death is easy and not to be mourned. We ought to weep for Abraham in his death. We ought to weep for Abraham in his burial. We ought to weep for those who are mourning Abraham's death. We ought to weep in the wake of our emotions as we experience death and the death of our loved ones. Death is meant to be mourned. It's meant to be wept over. But Abraham is gathered with his people. And so there's a sense in which There's a part of his death that we do not weep as Christians. He is gathered to his people. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He was gathered to his people. We sing that great hymn, Jerusalem, my happy home, when shall my sorrows have an end? Your joys, when shall I sing? We sing those sorts of songs looking forward to New Jerusalem. But that's not Abraham's song. That's not Isaac's song. That's not Jacob's song or Moses or anyone's song in Christ. 
They are not singing that song. They are experiencing the trueness, present tense of that song. There's a story behind our little stories. There is pleasure behind the pain of death. There is truth beyond the lie that nothing exists beyond the grave. Abraham was gathered with his people. Just read Revelation to see the songs and the hymns and the joy that they're experiencing. God is faithful in this world and he's faithful into the next. He is eternally faithful. But one more example of God's faithfulness that I want to point out. One more phrase to consider in the sort of meat of this conclusion. Verse 11. There's an expectation that we can have in light of God's faithfulness. Verse 11, we read, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. That, that phrase, after the death of, dot, 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 actually comes up multiple places in the Old Testament. It signals a transition in redemptive history. So, for instance, the book of Joshua begins, and after the death of Moses. Judges starts with, after the death of Joshua. Second Samuel starts with, after the death of Saul. The writers of the Old Testament use that phrase, after the death of, to signal, okay, something big is happening. There's a transition that's happening. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Genesis 25 are all historical turning points. It's increasing the tension. And if you're reading the Bible for the first time, if you come to that, just imagine being God's people for the first time, reading God's faithfulness to Abraham. He dies, and then it says, after the death of Abraham, you're wondering just narratively, okay, God was faithful in the past. I wonder, will God continue to be faithful in the present and into the future? Will God not only bless the towering saint of Abraham, will God bless lowly Isaac? After the death, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. Spoiler alert. We're not going to continue going through the book of Genesis, but if we were, if we were to go from verses, or chapters 25 to 35, sort of the lifespan of Isaac, you would see God's faithfulness to Isaac in his marriage, with his children, in the good times and the bad times. God is faithful to Isaac. And so even that phrase, after Abraham died, it reminds us that all of us are in transition, are in moments of transition in the sense that we are all, every moment, have a decision to make. Will we trust God? And then you fill in the blank. Will we trust God with this day? Will we trust God with this relationship? Will we trust God with this job? Will we trust God with this trauma that we've experienced? Will we trust God with this pain, this sorrow? Will we trust God? I was reminded of this last night. I was watching a football game with two of my sons, and it was the end of the game, and all of a sudden, interrupting kind of the climax of this game was an amber alert. Some of you might have been watching this game. And unfortunately for me, my two sons can read, and so they began to read the amber report about a young girl 
who uh, her parents couldn't find. And that night, I then tucked my sons into bed, and I prayed, and I sang. But one of my sons said, I'm scared in light of all, in light of the Amber Alert. I'm scared that this is the world we live in. And I would be lying if I didn't have those fears as well. So what, what do you do in those moments? Do you just punt? Do you just lie? That, that doesn't exist. That's just a... What do you do in those moments? Well, those are the moments in which we are at a crossing point, And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to trust God? As we live in the gap, this is a broken world. Sin exists. We live in between Christmas, you know, the first advent of Christ, and Christ's second coming. We live in between those two realities. God is building his kingdom, but his kingdom has not come in its fullness yet. We live in the gap between those two realities. Do we trust God? We live between joys and sorrows, don't we? between successes and failures, between encouragement and discouragement. We live between faith and sometimes doubt, between sort of the historical mountain peak of Rainier and the depths of the Pacific Ocean. We live in the reality of those two worlds. We live in the gap between God promising to bring an end to sin and darkness and evil But that has not come just yet. And I hope, I hope that studying the life of Abraham has done for you what it's done for me, which is strengthen my resolve to trust God in the highs and the lows, in the good days and the bad days, that whatever I wake up to in the morning or whatever I go to bed, whatever that worry is, that concern is, that in the little ways I've seen God be faithful in the past, it conjures up deeper and greater resolve to trust God in the present and into the future. 1,500 years ago, one author put it this way. There, looking forward to that great hope into the future, there will be and there shall be a great rest that we will see. You will see it, and you will experience it. It will be love and praise. Behold, we will see it, and what we see will have no end. God is faithful to the end. He's faithful in the smallest details. And in the meantime, as Christians, our role, our calling is to whatever adversity finds us, to put our trust and faith in God. He is worthy of that trust. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that there are many days in which our resolve to trust you is waning, and we pray, Lord, that you would persevere us in those moments. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and encourage us to trust you more and more. You are trustworthy from beginning to end. And we thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. Help us to delight in you, we pray in your son's name.
all men.